Welcome to the Comical Heathen. I'm not just a heathen, but I'm a comical one. This is your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, the world's most highly educated stand-up comedian. Welcome to season two of the Comical Heathen podcast. I started this podcast a couple years ago in connection with a book I'm writing about satire. Since I do stand-up comedy, I thought I'd interview the comedians around me as part of the research for my book, and those interviews kind of grew into this podcast. And today's episode, in fact, features an interview, an interview with comedian Brian Scott McFadden. Comes from a show business family and has a lot of ideas about comedy and satire. It's actually a very invigorating and slightly tiring conversation. Very uh, intense, high-paced speaker. Interviewing Brian, you kind of feel like an Olympic athlete on the podium, exhausted but proud. Today's episode also includes a guest co-host coming on in a few minutes will be my very good friend Dan Brown. And watch out for Dan Brown. He has an upcoming Dry Bar special coming out later this year. So fingers crossed, Dan, and congratulations. As for what's on my mind, I saw this headline. I'm quoting now. Headline said, Franklin Graham says Republicans who voted to impeach Trump are like Jesus's betrayer. Which is by Simone Jasper from the Charlotte Observer. Is this then the ultimate Christian slam comparing someone you disagree with to Judas? Worse than Judas? This is like if you're in a restaurant and you don't like the crab bisque so you compare the chef to Jeffrey Dahmer. Have you tasted this? Go back to cooking school, you hack. Even Jeffrey Dahmer knew how much salt to add. Or comparing a mother-in-law who criticized how late you sleep in to a banker who refused your loan application just because your credit score was low. And I quote, Lower than the Titanic? Wait a second, that metaphor may be a little too autobiographical. Let's just move on. Back to Graham, this is the ultimate evangelical ad hominem attack. Ad hominem is when you attack the person, or the character of the person, instead of their, you know, ideas in a debate. Graham could have explained why he disagreed with impeachment, but instead he personally attacked them. Ultimate evangelical sounds a lot like a Christian pro wrestler. And when I'm done with you, you're going to wish you were Judas. We'll settle this at the armory in Sandusky. Sorry, that's the best Ultimate Warrior voice I got. Shout out to Chris Clem. He does Ultimate Warrior. Even if you disagreed with the impeachment, Franklin Graham, Trump is the president, which at best is a glorified bureaucrat. Whereas Jesus is, you know, supposed to be the son of God, which is at best a glorified Stone Age demigod. They do share in common benefiting immensely from nepotism. I mean, you might be trying to elect Trump, but do you need to demean your own savior to do it? I will point out that evangelicals have a higher than average divorce rate, and they also have a higher than average voting for Trump rate. So maybe making good decisions just isn't their thing. I've ranted about evangelicals in the past on other former episodes. Go look them up. So I won't go into like the whole thing again right now. But if I may get a little personal for a moment... Sometimes people, friends, I saw that look, I have friends, ask, you know, ask me why I care about all of this. And it also comes up in my live one-man show. I talk about uh, the personal side of this project for me. Well, let me give you an example. Consider evangelical preacher Adir Macedo uh, down in Brazil. It was reported that he told his daughters not to go to college. Now, since 1977, this guy has raked in a billion with a B for his BS, billion dollars. Man, with that much money, I could almost pay off my student loans. Almost. Now his reason, he told his daughters not to go to college, is that if they had too much education, they couldn't be properly submissive to their husbands. Education, right? Am I right? Like they might read a book that's not about cooking and find out about the word misogyny. It may sound like uh, Macedo is afraid of intelligent women, like some grown men fear spiders. Get a tennis racket! But cut the guy some slack. He's just trying to prepare his daughters for a happy, successful marriage in the 1800s. And then the reason I take this kind of personally is because I have two daughters who both went to college and because they wanted to not because it was my decision, and definitely not to prepare them for marriage. Because who gives a fuck? This isn't the 1800s, and not everyone has to get married. I don't care if they get married, not get married, gay, straight, go to church, become an atheist, as long as I, personally, don't have to pay for anything. Back to Franklin Graham for one more thing. You know, uh, Franklin, your whole insult 
doesn't even quite make sense. Since for your own New Testament to like work as a narrative, you need Judas to betray Jesus. Otherwise, no salvation. So if you think about it, Judas is the real hero. Just like Liz Cheney is the real hero. Plus, God and or whoever wrote the Bible in real life (laughs) made Judas do it. So it's really your own God's fault anyway. So maybe those 10 Republicans, just like Judas, maybe God made them vote to impeach Trump because it's all part of his inscrutable divine plan. You'll be able to read all about it in the new New Testament after I finish writing it. Whew, that was annoying. Uh, Before we slide into the rest of today's show, which features my interview with Brian Scott McFadden, I also want to give you a little foreshadowing, a little preview. I want to let you know that next week's show has two very special guests, Leanne Lord and Brian Mallow, both well-known comedians who are also science communicators. So be sure to tune in next week. Anyway, let's get this show going and let's bring on today's guest co-host, Dan Brown. All right, well, it's my pleasure to uh, bring into the show today's guest co-host, my very good friend and comedy buddy, comedy partner, Dan Brown. How are you doing, Dan? Hi, am I on the radio? You are on the interwebs, the interwaves. Jerry, Jerry, I'm going to have to ask you to turn down your radio. I'm going to ask you to turn off your radio, but keep your computer <laughs> on. I need it to hear your voice. Dude, thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for doing this. It's a pleasure to hear your voice in these pandemic times. Some people know Dan. He's a professional comedian based in the Cleveland area, and he and I have a side project called the Action Comedy Nerd Show that- That will live again. That will live again. It tours to anime, comic book conventions. We do our own special brand of nerd humor. Often our friend Jesse uh, Pimpinella is with us. Thanks to the pandemic, most anime conventions have either uh, you know skipped a year or gone virtual. And so we haven't been able to do that project since 2019. Like it's been over a year since we've done an Action Comedy Nerd Show show at this point. I was about to say, we we technically had an action comedy nerd show in 2020. However, uh, yeah. you and Jesse were unable to, uh, <laughs> to partake in that show. So literally the only person the action comedy nerd show, it's, it, was, it was essentially a Dan Brown starring show on behalf of the action comedy nerd show. I know the crowds loved it. Where was that again? That was at Wizard World Cleveland. I mean, and Wizard World's not pulling the biggest crowds. Um, I I, I certainly hope that they do um, when they come back. But it was definitely better than the year before. Well, we, which we did it the year before, right? Like, yes. I mean, I was there anyway. I can't remember if Jesse made it or not. I think I believe Jesse made it for one of the shows, yeah. It seemed like it had nice crowds, but the way the convention center was laid out, you kind of had to leave the convention to go to the... To go to the panels, room. yeah. Yeah. Now, the crowd flow was not conducive. Uh, but we started, I mean, I remember there being a crowd... 40, 50 people. Does that sound right? I'm talking like two years ago at this point. So um, I thought maybe it would have been a little bit smaller because they kind of gave us like a weird time slot. And we like you said, you had to leave the convention. Shows, though, right? We did do shows. So yes. It might be that one was just a little bigger than the other. Sure. Probably. And I'm remembering the good times. I remember all of the times. Right. Today in the audience <laughs> is always half empty. <laughs> the pessimistic comedian. <laughs> or as I call it, comedian. Dan, well, it was good to see you. I was just talking about um, how Franklin Graham uh, back in January not only issued like a sermon where he was criticizing Republicans who voted to impeach Trump, but he actually like said it was worse than betraying Jesus. Which you I know? thought evangelicals agreed with. Yeah, well, I mean, he agreed with himself. That's all he cares about. I mean, do you have any reaction to the uh, Franklin Graham proclamation? You know, it, it's it's one of those things where it's it's sad that it no longer surprises you. You almost expect it. Bill Mars talked about this on a show where people go like, how can these people sleep at night? They do it really well. They sleep yeah. like babies because there's, there's no, no amount of hypocrisy th- that uh, just eludes them. Well, you know, there's an, a whole um, other Christian group, Christian community called Faithful America, started a petition demanding that Graham step down from his evangelical post for his political statements, for being like too political, like sort of like therefore the separation of church and state. And so for him to come out and just say, this is impeaching Donald Trump is worse than betraying Jesus, uh, offended this other Christian group. Now, you, you said that group's called Faithful America? Yes. So is that made up of only evangelicals? Is it made up, is it like a melting pot of Christians and other religions? I'm sure it's a left-leaning Christian group. 
Yeah, I'm looking at their website right now. The website claims to have 180,000 members. And, and more are joining by the second. Apparently. Uh. <laughs> Founded in 2004, it's an online community of Christians putting faith into action for social justice. <laughs> and it's just okay. described as grassroots Christians across the nation. So not per se an evangelical group. But, you know, that does lead me to like a, just a, a whole other thing I wanted to bring up. But maybe since you asked, let's hear your reaction first. What do you think about like this other Christian group throwing down the gauntlet to the evangelicals? <laughs> well, don't get me wrong. I would love to watch Christians fight Christians all day. Rolling <laughs> like, built an entire Coliseum for it. Yeah, they did. And <laughs> occasionally they throw in a lion just for fun. <laughs> Listen, whatever you believe. It, okay, so actually I, got, I have to start over already because 2020 was such a bizarre year to where you can't even say, you know, whatever you believe is fine, just as long as you're not hurting anybody. Right. Because in the long run, you're going to find that there are people just being hurt. Just you're you're finding people who are just going to start wars just to hurt people. Which is his like condemnation of these Republicans in the way that he did. I liken to what uh, like debate teachers call an ad hominem attack. Okay. I've heard that phrase before. Okay. I, I actually just looked it up before um, the show because I was looking at something else. It seems like the definition kind of makes sense. Could you explain what that term means, ad hominem? Like with a lot of things in school, and I do teach a lesson about this in one of my classes, I can give the simple explanation and then it gets complicated after that. But let's yeah. skip the complicated part and go like, what's the like simple one or two sentence? Ad hominem is Latin for at the man or at the person. And it's when, if you're in a debate with someone, instead of critiquing a comment they make, or an idea they present, you insult them personally. Okay. So if Bernie Sanders says, we need to have a $15 an hour minimum wage, and the person he's talking to responds by saying, you're a socialist. Okay. That's in attacking the man. Now, Instead of saying, this is why the $15 right. minimum wage. So instead of work. debating the pros and cons of raising the minimum wage, they start yeah. insulting the character of the person they're debating. So when you said that you want to do a podcast and I said, you're a dumb piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, because in this case, anyone from this day forward who wants to do a podcast probably is a dumb piece of shit. And as well, somebody who does their own podcast, I can agree that I am a dumb piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Any technology that I try to adopt is at least three years behind <laughs> everyone else. That's that's for sure. And look, look up my MySpace account. I got that rocking. <laughs> So I think that when Franklin Graham makes these like a, a character assassinations, if he thinks you shouldn't vote to impeach Trump, then what? give your pros and cons. But if he's going to point at the people who voted to impeach Trump and just do like an extreme religious character assassination, you guys are worse than Judas, that's an odd ad hominem attack. Okay. Well, I believe yeah. every one of those Grahams are a piece of shit. Well, not Dr. Jerry <laughs> Graham Jr., but no, no, that guy's a legend. Professional wrestler. That guy's a fucking genius. But if we're talking about the evangelical family that started with Billy Graham and now is run by Franklin Graham, we can agree. And I, I don't trust anybody whose name is Franklin, but doesn't go by Frank. Not even Franklin the Turtle? Well, Franklin the Turtle, that, that's kind of the point, though. It's like a marketing thing. Franklin the Turtle yeah. is so cute. But if you go to a bar and you meet a dude who's like a blue collar, salt of the earth, and he goes hey, by Franklin. You're like, that's hey, the guy I'm who's throwing Frank. the union under the bus. Yeah, well, you say like, hey, I'm Frank. You know, you're going to buy Frank a beer and want to hear what he has to say. But if that guy says, hey, I'm Franklin, you're going to like turn your bar stool to the side and say, what's your name to the next person? Like yeah. <laughs> anyone who calls himself any adult. I'm Benjamin. Ah, I'm fucked. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> who calls themselves Franklin. So I already don't trust him. I do think it's funny, too, when one Christian group tells another Christian group how to Christian. Yeah. Like, there's one organization who's like now has this schism, like religious schisms to me are funny. Because uh, if you're talking about, of course, matters of faith or personal belief, and that's personal. So I'm not even talking about that. But if one group says to Franklin Graham, he's not Christianing correctly, I just think that's hilarious. Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear, I just think this is funny, so I'm going to just throw it out there. Dan, how do you kill a vampire? How do you kill a vampire? I assume with sunlight or garlic or a stick to the heart. But then again, Twilight showed me that none of those work. Right. Well, all, all of your answers are appropriate from film and literature and lore. But the correct answer is 
any way you want, vampires don't fucking exist. <laughs> you know what? I have heard that from you. Except <laughs> it was about unicorns. You know, you, we can make fun of um, Twilight because of the way they reinvented the vampire. But if you or I were writing a vampire story and we wanted to be original, we can say anything we want, you know? Yeah. Being on Zoom kills a vampire or... Bad jokes kill a vampire. Like you know, I was at a I was at a comic book convention years ago when Stan Lee was still alive, and okay. I went to his Q and A, and somebody okay. asked him who would win in a fight between Batman and the or, I'm sorry, who would win in a fight between Superman and the Incredible Hulk, and he goes, it depends who's writing it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Right. He goes, if you write it, you, you can write it, and then neither of them win. He was like, right. the guy next to you can write it, and both of them win. It doesn't right. matter. <laughs> I, the reason we started babbling about this is because it goes back to Christians criticizing other Christians. Like, yeah. if how do you Christian, the answer is any way you want, because they're just making it up anyway. Or to paraphrase Stan Lee, it depends on who the writer is. Who's that evangelical guy who has his own private plane that got caught by uh, access... Insider oh, access. Well, um, there was, Kenneth Copeland, I Kenneth think. Kenneth Copeland got caught getting a second private jet. Like, he already had one private oh, jet. Oh, you're right. <laughs> he has two of them. He got a better one. And in an interview, he, he described that uh, he can't fly coach or commercial because of the danger of being in a tube full of demons. Yeah. So that's the thing. Like, and listen, think, uh, first time listeners to today's podcast, I want you to know that I did a rant about that in an earlier episode. <laughs> which I'm now going to have to reference in the program notes. So I did a whole like 10 minutes on what a hypocrite and ass Kenneth Copeland is because of the jet thing. I, th I think that turns away a lot of people from Christianity too. Well, like when they see somebody like that and like the whole point of it was supposed to be, it was like, try to do your best to live Christ-like. Right. You're never going to be like Christ, but do your best to be sure. the best kind of person you can be. Buying a private plane and saying, I can't be on a tube full of demons right. is probably not the best thing to do. Well, to paraphrase when, Jesus, how did it go easier for a rich man uh, to get into heaven than it will be for your private jet to get through the eye of a needle? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I want to say one more thing about ad hominem attacks. We would want people, the goal, just people out in life, to notice them and find them less persuasive. Yeah. You know, Donald Trump is famous for insulting people and his fans kind of get off on it. It's funny. It's degrading to your opponent. It's owning the libs. So be it with Trump and his followers. Just please, when you're out there, everyone in your life, notice when ad hominem attacks are occurring. Yeah. And, you know, be a little, you know, less persuaded by them. Like red flags. Oh, person A or candidate X just insulted that person. He didn't actually, he or she did not actually address the issues. And uh, I wanted to give another example of this. It's um, something I noticed and I got Dan to help me a little bit. So let me tell you what I want to do. I have a friend who's a biology professor and I was just asking in like the past couple of years what she notices students bring up when discussing climate change. Like what kind of questions are climate change deniers that are in her class. What do they bring up? Like I was trying to find out what are the arguments. And she said that it's common in the past couple of years to, to show classes, the Leonardo DiCaprio narrated documentary before the flood. So one of the things I asked Dan to do was go on to Amazon, look at the customer reviews of the documentary, go to the one star section and find you know examples of people who say they don't like the film and criticize Leonardo DiCaprio. What'd you come up with, Dan? So the first one I pulled up here was from Boiler Boss J, who gave yeah. it 1.5 stars out of five. And it said, garbage, I would give it no stars if possible. It's, Excellent. Then it just said, garbage, I would give it no stars if possible. Leo DeCap is a bad front runner for global warming. And I was like, well, that's kind of mean for to, to say about Luke from Growing Pains. Yes. <laughs> uh, some lady in Florida also know, gave like, it who one. Thought, who thought Gilbert Grape would get an Oscar, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, some lady in Florida gave it 1.0 out of five stars and says, hate when a famous actor tries to look intelligent. Right. So that that's that's what the caption, like that's yeah. <laughs> that's the subject line. And then in the text, hate when a famous actor tries to look intelligent. All he did was regurgitate what he was told or read and had no thought that seemed to be his own. Oh my goodness, an actor learned his lines? I mean, again, this is like a criticism of a documentary about a serious are, subject. Are you trying to tell me that Robin Williams really did not mean those things he said to Will Hunting and Goodwill Hunting? <laughs> 
Are you trying to tell me that Robin Williams was really not at that baseball game? <laughs> well, actually, in the movie, he wasn't at that baseball right. game. Oh, that, that was one of the more touching moments. <laughs> the last one I got here is just from Amazon customer. One out of five stars. Uh, one star reviewed. Utter nonsense. A Hollywood blowhard jetting around the world trying to teach, in quotation, right. us how to change our lives. That's right. You know, the old saying is shoot the messenger, right? What difference does it make that Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, I mean, and then, by the way, free speech, criticize anyone you want. But, but the point is, in a debate, you don't kill the messenger, you debate yeah. the facts, the evidence, and the ideas. I mean, I can get, like, if somebody was trying to teach you, like, if somebody did a documentary about something you're just so absolutely against, sure. and somebody narrated it, I can get why maybe you don't want to see anything from that person again or why you might have a little bit of anger towards the person narrating it but climate change has no feelings about people right <laughs> <laughs> like it's it just it happens yes and yeah. you can choose to be like i don't believe it or i do believe it or you know i need to see more evidence or whatever yeah, you may want to believe and some people don't Spoiler alert it's happening you know leonardo dicaprio is rich and famous to, to say mean things about leo I was like, come on, man. He was an inception. You right. didn't insult him during that movie. He was yeah. in Titanic. You didn't insult him in that I movie. insulted Morgan Freeman for narrating the Penguin movie. I mean, <laughs> penguins, fuck penguins and Morgan for telling me they should, you know, that they're cute. You know, <laughs> I, mean, I think maybe Leo should have had more penguins in this movie. I mean, I know he wasn't the director. Like he was he was simply just reading lines. Right. Uh, 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 just for the point of, of fact checking, DiCaprio is one of the producers of that film. Oh, OK. So I just uh, I want people to think that we're glossing over that fact. If that's so fucking fact. hell, Leo, add some penguins. More people will be willing yeah. to listen to you. Oh, Dan, you're so manipulative. Trying to manipulate yeah. people's feelings. Hey, Dan, that, that sound effect is to remind me that I've invited some of my friends to just have something they want to complain about in the world to phone in. So earlier this week, I got a phone call from our good friend, Mad Marv, Marv Carner, down in Akron, Ohio. Comedian popular at the Funny Stop. Let's uh, hear what he had to complain about. Jeff Dunham's very upset. He feels that wearing a mask is cheapening his act. I got to agree, Jeff. I thought your act was as cheap as it could be, but you've gone to a lower depth. Because I can do ventriloquism now with a mask. I'm the best ventriloquist ever. Have you seen my Dolphin J. Trump now? It's gone up a little bit. It's a little better now because you can't see my mouth move. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great ventriloquist. I'm as good as Jeff Dunham now. That's my whole point. And I don't have the racism, allegedly, that he uses. And, allegedly, uh, everyone. Allegedly. <laughs> how, how would I put describe his act uh, it would be oh it, it's not racism and pandering it does allow that few of us puppets may have boogaloo tendencies boogaloo <laughs> used to be a group that had helped attack the capital i heard yes some of his puppets belong to the proud puppets <laughs> puppets that's it that ought to be a new ventriloquist act right there <laughs> he's taking it on tour <laughs> I just think Jeff feels that wearing a mask is a cheap ploy to become a ventriloquist during the age of COVID-19. And I think Jeff should realize being a ventriloquist is a cheap ploy. Because <laughs> he just restructures all jokes and puts them in his act, which is not the work of comedy. It's also um, cannot be covered up by a mask, <laughs> right. whether he's wearing a mask or not. <laughs> and it doesn't hide his backwoods, racist, homophobic, misogynistic, and anti-Semitic puppets. It doesn't do any of that. <laughs> I know we have some big Jeff Dunham fans, and to you people, I say, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry you're a big Jeff Dunham fan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then, um, but what, what do you say, Marv, to those Jeff Dunham fans who say, he's a billionaire, and we're doing a free podcast in our basements? <laughs> like, he must be right. That's how <sighs> capitalism works. I don't know that he's right, because there's a lot of people with the Trump rallies, too. <laughs> <laughs> And who bought those the, MAGA hats. He is the highest paying act in the country, and he's popular at every Trump rally. So those two things intersecting together, that's a big circle that shouldn't be big. In a Venn diagram, it shouldn't work, but it does. <laughs> and that is another thing we got to fix in America, just another. <laughs> and this is why I am in the basement of my house most of the time doing my comedy, too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Marv, you tell them. Yeah, Marv, thanks for calling in. Love to hear, hear from my friends. Appreciate that. 
So, Jerry, I got a question for you, because I know Marv used to be a teacher. He's retired mm -hmm. now, and you are an educator yourself. Mm -hmm. yes. Do you think being able to teach students about ad hominem would have a positive or negative effect going forward? Good question, Dan. What I'm thinking about from when I hear that question is something like, sometimes it's sort of like as a metaphor, like is education a vaccine against things like the ad hominem attack? Like if people are better educated, would they identify them? and then uh, be less persuaded by them? Or would people be less attracted to what's sometimes called magical thinking? You know, it's like alien abductions, ghosts, things of that nature. And the answer is, so it's sort of like a partial yes. There's like a partial inoculation, but it's not a, a guarantee. I'll give you a funny example, Dan, and then you can tell me one too. I just wanna say I have a friend who's a uh, college professor. I'm not even gonna say what he or she teaches because I'm not trying to out anybody. But this is a person who teaches college, has a PhD, very, very intelligent and well-read, and believes in ghosts. Hey, you trying to say I'm not well-read because I believe in ghosts? <laughs> no, but I'm saying you haven't had as much of an inoculation against magical thinking as my friend, other <laughs> friend has. <laughs> so it's not perfect, you know. Being quote-unquote better educated doesn't just make someone automatically immune. What do you think, Dan? Well, I can certainly see... And I'm just going to bring up Donald Trump in this circumstance because you mentioned, you know, the, like the way how he attacks people. I can see why a lot of people are attracted to that sure. because there's people who are like that, who the mm -hmm. moment you cross them or they feel cross, they don't give a crippled fuck what is going <laughs> on. Right. You know, to, to use a wrestling term there, you know, they're going <laughs> to let you know what a, what a dumb piece of shit you are. You also have people that, don't have the courage to do that themselves. Not saying that they're cowards, but they just don't have that within them to, let's say I don't like something about you, Jerry, not say it to your face. But I like the fact that there's other people who can do that. It's empowering. And, yeah. And then you see somebody at doing it, you're, you're seeing somebody in great power at right. such a high level doing that to people, you wishing that you can do that to people. And well, I can certainly see why people. Well, there's something that. about being the person standing next to the bully. Right? Oh, absolutely. So you might not be the one doing the bullying, but you get kind of like secondhand smoke of the bullying. Like it makes you feel emboldened, makes you feel tough, makes you feel part of a group. And most people have gut reactions before they have intellectual thoughts. Yes. You need to have a sit down conversation right. with somebody where you both need to be willing to listen and hear each other. The key underlying thing is that everyone, no matter how well educated they are, has a gut reaction before yeah. they have an intellectual reaction. So we would like to think that we could, by learning about things like ad hominem attack or critical thinking skills, that when you get after your gut reaction and try to apply your intellectual reaction, like working out, you're like better prepared for those harder right. thoughts. But it simply is not, unfortunately, like a one-to-one -one thing that you can teach someone about ad hominem, and then they're automatically immune to its persuasive effects. Sure. Now, someone who I find really persuasive, Dan, and however many people, 1 to 27, are actually listening to this podcast, uh, 1 to 26 of them are probably listening for us to get to the interview today. So I want to introduce today's uh, interview subject, professional touring comedian. I had a chance to talk to him via Zoom last month, uh, Brian Scott McFadden. Oh, he's great. Yeah, he's hilarious. Yeah, he's really good. Yeah, if you ever have a chance to see him, see him. I'm going to include you know, links to all his social media and websites and stuff. He comes from a show business family. His grandfather was a vaudevillian, actually. That was interesting. And then uh, we got into talking about his comedy and his thoughts on satire. So, Dan and anybody listening, without further ado, my interview with Brian Scott McFadden. Let's do it. I'm in Aruba right now. so oh. I'm. Um, well, good I'm, for you, my man. Yeah. Well, anyone... Yeah, uh, listening to this may wonder who is this strange person in Aruba. Yeah. So let me fill you in. Today I'm talking to Brian Scott McFadden. That's right. When a person has three names, I always want to make sure I say them correctly. So yeah. welcome, Brian. Thanks for doing the podcast with me today. Having what do you three do? names immediately identifies you as a serial killer or a presidential assassin. Okay, that, <laughs> you know, interestingly, there's never been a, a presidential assassin who was also a serial killer. It, right, right. That's, that's a, true. That's true. 
So one and they, done they, type of job. Absolutely. They aim high and they, you know what I mean? Some people like to spread the wealth, but I think they're single-minded individuals. Like the people that, that, that go after the presidents are usually very, very focused, yes. uh, high achieving individuals. Overachievers for sure. What are you doing in Aruba, if I may ask? Uh, I'm doing a, a, a comedy club, Aruba Ray Ellen's uh, okay. comedy club, Aruba Comedy Club here at the beautiful Holiday Inn. So How's that been going? Doing, uh, great. I've been down here since December 12th uh, and they're socially distant shows. And, uh, okay. you know, so we're, we're uh, um, attending to um, pandemic protocols and uh, making people laugh through their masks. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations on the gig. I'm glad the shows are going well. I mean, I, see, that's sort of on the the back or front of the mind of most comedians in the past year is how the pandemic has been affecting both our art and our business. Yeah. You know, I like to talk about on this podcast as satire and religious satire, but also, you know, uh, we're meeting our, our mutual friend, Mark Riccadonna, uh, for good or for ill, has set this up, introduced us. So thank you, Mark. Give us the, you know, 90 second biography. How'd you get into comedy in the first place? Uh, I came from a show business family. My uh, my grandfather was a, a vaudevillian and a failed vaudevillian slash uh, bar owning alcoholic. Okay. Uh, not necessarily in that order. He he was a uh, vaudeville performer, but not uh, very successful. That's why he drank. My father was the youngest uh, son that he had, and uh, my father decided to sort of follow follow in my grandfather's failed footsteps and became a, a comedian. And he was uh, more successful. He started, he went on the road in the fifties and and did a lot of a lot of uh, performing and uh, worked in mm-hmm. Cuba before Castro took over. Uh, performed mm-hmm. at the National Hotel. He was an impressionist. He did voices. He did singing. Anyway, long story short, and uh, then he had me. And uh, so I've, I've sort of taken up the mantle of this dysfunctional uh, ancestry of, uh, of my sure. uh, crazy family and uh, decided at an early age uh, that accounting was not for me sure. or, uh, or law school or anything else. But it didn't seem weird. Um, since your families are performers, it just seemed like, oh, that's a job I can have. I never, oh. I never thought it was odd or anything. So. I uh, started doing comedy out of, out of college and uh, became an actor and did voiceovers and okay. commercials and cartoons and those kind of things. And uh, it's been a, it's been a, a good uh, life uh, before the pandemic, before the plague took everything, <laughs> before the mafia took over Mexico. If, if there was a fourth generation McFadden, your son or daughter at age 12 looked at you and said, Daddy, I want to be a comedian. Yeah. What would be your reaction to that? Run, flee. I would disown him. Right. <laughs> I would, uh, I would right. sell him to a, a tribe somewhere. No, I, I would. I would be absolutely supportive. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. can't. You know, you know people that so many people that are in jobs that they either hate or their careers that they embark on that they don't like right. or they end up in, in situations. So I mean, if somebody has a, a passion for something, all I would do is uh, for a kid of my own is, is just say, if you want to do that, then uh, I would I would support you. Prepare for uh, heartache and, and, <laughs> and pain, but that's right. no different from any other profession that you'll have heartache <laughs> in. But you might as well do something that you right. like while you're being miserable. You know what I mean? Like so. Yeah. <laughs> If the working premise is you're going to be miserable at any job. <laughs> yeah, sure. If the capitalist machine is going to grind you into dust, better, you know, you're, you're you know, pixie dust than just the nothing. You know what I mean? It's just mm-hmm. do something that you enjoy while they're uh, like eating you alive, as they say. <laughs> I mean, I do. I love art and I, of, of all kinds. And I love the art, artistry of, of, of creativity and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's uh, far more rewarding than any right. kind of a career in some other field where you're just another mm-hmm. cog in the machine. You're just a, a different cog in the machine, but you have some say in uh, expressing your ideas and your artistic vision and creativity in, in show business. Comedians are sometimes like the island of misfit artists yeah. <laughs> compared to traditional arts or the arts and crafts somehow. Well, yeah, and comedy is never a respected um, it's it's the most it's the most revered and disrespected of the of the uh, of <laughs> art forms. It's it yeah. really is. I mean, people are in awe of it and have a total disregard for it in equal measure. It's fascinating, <laughs> you know, in this weird contradictory way. Like people right. like, oh my god, I can't believe you actually do that. And then the same the same you know show there'll be somebody going, I could do that. You suck. You're not funny. Right. You're, 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 it's the only art art form oftentimes with an antagonistic a relationship with the audience on occasion. People will heckle. Sense of humor is something that everyone believes they have in some right. measure. 
And that's a remarkable statement because there's very few qualities that almost every, well, I guess you could say that, you know, yeah, yeah. everyone has love in them, everyone has hate yes. in them. But, but sense of humor is something that's a universal thing and everybody believes they have a pretty good one. But we all know that, that that's mythical, uh, that, that there are a lot of people who seem to not have that. And, and, and so, but, but when everyone thinks they're kind of funny, yes. everyone thinks they're kind of funny. You know, no one will go, no one ever says, I don't have any sense of humor. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I don't have a good sense. Everyone thinks they do. Right. And but the scale is very, you know, goes from, yes. you, know, you know, down here to the guy at the plant to Richard Pryor. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, but there are comedy producers, comedy consumers, people with a yep. sense of comedy. And so as an art form, it gets right. disrespected. And that you can see that in the way that um, the Academy Awards, that comedy movies and comedy acting do not get any kind of respect if, no. if you look at it. So that's, that's a, that's, right. that shows you how people perceive comedy in, in, in even in elite circles that revere right. comedy. Even in artistic circles, uh, you know, yeah. people who shouldn't and, and know. Woody, Woody Allen, you know, Annie Hall won Best Picture. And, right. and, and that's like an epic achievement. And, and it was also fascinating because I, I think it was probably because the movie was serious in many ways, not like Sleeper or... Earlier you know, farces. Money and Run or, yeah. or... Yeah, exactly. Almost like a, a stage magician where people don't know how the trick is done. And that's, if you're into it, that's what makes it fun. I think there is like an art and craft and, and uh, technique to joke writing that the casual audience, even a fan, like doesn't see the trick occurring, if you know what I mean. Right. Yes. They're, it's kind of dazzling in a way. What, and no one really knows why right. that is, or, or whether it's a function of language, poetry, the construction yeah. of how we speak. And, and it's really interesting because I like to focus on that and then bend it and, and see what you can get away with and see how that formula really, really holds up right. under scrutiny and pressure. Sometimes I try to extend the joke longer than I, I need to because I just want to see how far I can take sure. it and whether or not it runs out of gas because of like the numbers a game where it's a, a, a hit one punchline, then a tag, then another tag or something like right. that. Another comedy writing craft that you can learn is sometimes lists are funny. Yes. Your Letterman appearance, and I think your comedy album, What Women Want, is, did I say that correctly? And in a, in a way, that bit is, you know, it's on, on one hand, it's like a men versus women type of setup. Sure. But, but I think the comedic, like, uh, energizer battery of it is that it's a list. Like, you just keep listing so many. I, yeah, I, I, I really went crazy with that piece. I, I sat up with a thesaurus for, like, literally... <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not even joking, like for hours trying to find the exact wording for every possible combination of contradictory aspects of the of <laughs> sexual dynamics of male-female attraction that I could find. And I really, really worked meticulously on it because I, it was hard to find. I wanted to say something about how women are attracted to men who are, because um, I, I don't really believe that it's wealth that a right. woman, you know, because there's that cliche, women are gold diggers and all that stuff. And I, I didn't really, I felt that was mm -hmm. in some ways misogynistic, simplistic, and, and not really accurate in a way. That, but right. I wanted to say something about, and that was the heart, one of the hardest things. Well, how do I convey the idea that women want a man who is, uh, I don't want to say wealthy, because I, I think what the wealth connotes is something that's more attractive to women right. than the wealth necessarily right. itself. And so I sat up and I finally stumbled upon uh, women want a man who's ambitious, an achiever, who's, who's successful both professionally and financially, who's not materialistic, right? right. You know, like, and so I, I, I kind of hit the sweet spot with that right. construct, like looking for a way to say that very dynamic that I was trying to convey without going, they want a rich guy, you know, because I don't necessarily even believe that that's true. So I want, I, I, I think ambitious and a man who is going places and, mm -hmm. and has a vision for himself and wants to have a successful career in whatever he chooses to do mm -hmm. is, is more important. Who's not materialistic, <laughs> <laughs> uh, meaning shallow and, and just flashy. And, you know, so, and so that bit came out of just writing. And also a lot of comedy that I write, I think comes out of a sense of fear. If I, if I write enough, mm -hmm. 
if I write enough jokes, the audience will be so overwhelmed that I just went to so much trouble to just come <laughs> up with so many that if they don't even laugh, they'll just go, okay, that's really good. You boy, you really work your ass off. At least yeah. I'll get points for that. You know, yeah. you win so, either way. Yeah. <laughs> you get yeah. two chances to win. And, and I really think that was a way. And, and I think that comes out of playing a lot of hell gigs when I started where I wanted to have, keep talking because the minute you left any space of silence, someone sure. would feel it with an obscenity, a heckle or something. So I, I, right. I developed a style where I was like trying to find bits that were closed off to an impenetrable to interference <laughs> or anybody messing with me. You no, know, and what I've seen, there seems to be like a, I mean, you mentioned the thesaurus, not me, a kind of love of language in the way you write. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd be a poet if the money was as good. <laughs> I, I really do. I, I always say that. I, I'm a comedian. I'm a, I'm a comic, but I'd be a poet if I, if I was like in, you know, W. H. Auden's days or like Wordsworth <laughs> or something. I'd probably be doing that uh, simply because my love of language is such that I, I love finding the right word for something. I, I will obsess over that, and it's, and it's a curse because I'm <laughs> very perfectionistic about what I do, right. and that really does not serve me. Uh, because I tend to be incredibly picayune about okay. the craft of coming up with something, which in, injures my ability to like crank out in a prolific way uh, right. stuff. Because if something doesn't work, I tend to like, I'll try to work it, I'll try to work it. And if it doesn't work, I'll, I'll just like, kind of like, ah, I get so frustrated if I can't find the right word. And sometimes one word changes the dynamic of a joke in such a way that I can't, it's astonishing to me. And if you don't have the right word, it goes from an eight laugh to a three or no laugh at all. What I'm, um, you know, kind of fishing around for with this podcast is comedians' thoughts about satire or religious satire. Does satire play a, a part in your normal, like, headlining routine? It's funny because W.H. Odin has that, do you know the definition that he has of satire, which I think is fascinating? I don't know, not off the top of my head anyway. Uh, he says that satire is angry and optimistic. Okay. He believes that evil and attacks can be abolished. Comedy and but comedy is good-tempered and pessimistic. Huh. You, you know, it believes that however much we want to change the world or wish we could, we can't change human nature. We must make the best of a bad job. Okay, <laughs> I think that's the quote, something like that, right? Which I always love that satire is angry and optimistic. It believes that we can actually do something. Like like, and I I don't know where he got that, but there's something in that, that that connotes a certain level of wisdom that I think is a really devastatingly sharp, you know, okay. uh, satire that aims its, uh, its guns at uh, mm -hmm. power structures or uh, painful realities of the human condition in the hopes of enlightening people, I think is really, really a, a beautiful thing. And, but I, but I sometimes wonder, you know, like Mel Brooks used to, used to say that, you know, if you made fun of uh, Hitler, you know, you made fun of Hitler enough, you, made, you mock him, then you can, you know, kind of undermine him. And I, and I kind of like think, is that, tr is that completely true? Like, right. <laughs> I mean, Charlie Chaplin did the great dictator and, right. you know, people mocked the hell out of Trump and it didn't seem to make a dent, you know, and I, I'm right. not comparing him to, you know, necessarily Hitler, right. but I think that's like just cliche. But uh, when you sat satirize something, does it always really contribute to its, uh, I don't know, diminution, de devastating something or, or, or holding something up to ridicule? Because I don't know why, but there's a, there, it seems like certain aspects of, of comedy today, no matter how much you mock something, it almost normalizes it and just goes, oh, it's a big joke, you know? It's like that whole online culture thing where everything is satire, Pepe the Frog, and everyone's like yeah. laughing at something. And there's no point in it, it lacks the, the capacity to i don't know i could be completely wrong i mean i think well i mean i don't think you're completely wrong to say that um mel brooks has been mocking hitler and nazis for 60 plus years and we still have hitler and nazis around <laughs> so yeah, yeah it can't be working for it can't be working perfectly yeah we still have evil and you right. can mock it i think it just gives you the ability to move on with your life by recognizing the folly of the human condition, the, mm. the, the impermanence of everything and, the, and how fleeting and insane this trip around the, uh, this, this flying, this, uh, the trip on this big blue marble that we're on, mm -hmm. live all living on is in terms of like, what's the, what's the potency of, of, of satire? I see people like you know, Bill Hicks, who I loved and who had some of the best jokes and of right. all time stuff that he stuff that doesn't get much play like people think bill was just you know a kind of 
you know, angry ranter about politics and stuff like that. But he had really, really funny jokes that sure. were just epically crafted, perfect one-liners and right. stuff that he did on television that doesn't really get talked about in ways that people are like, oh, I was just angry and he was yelling and, you know, or he's overrated. I've read that, you right. know what I mean? But but I, I don't believe that at all. I think he was a, a great joke writer, right? <laughs> not to pile on Trump, but to talk about joke writing during the era of Trump. Yeah. I do think, you know, the majority of jokes about Trump for the past four years have been, to paraphrase the Auden quote that you just taught me, good tempered and pessimistic, actually. Like, I don't know that there's been a lot of satire about right. Trump. I mean, just calling Trump stupid was kind of toothless uh, attacks on his hair or his uh, stupidity or demeanor or something like that, which really didn't have much you know, or, or even calling him a Nazi, you know, Trump was such a, a, a kind of like this dark shadow creature from our collective American psyches, you know, yeah. that, that, that just really billboarded an element of, of American grotesqueness on, on writ large that we worship. It's funny about Trump that I always laugh that, that the person, people always go, who got Trump elected? The Russians? Was it was right. it racism? Was it the right. guy? No, it was The Apprentice. It was Mark Burnett on The Apprentice, right. okay, yep. who did more to mainline that guy into the American psyche for like 15 years. NBC yep. made that guy the apotheosis, the sine qua non of like, of like American success and capitalism and yep. business savvy and smart right. and intelligence. And then the minute he runs for office, they're like, this guy's a racist. He's a, he's a Nazi. He's a really well, and he's <laughs> hates women and he's a sexist. Didn't you know that before you gave him a show and packaged him, you know, for profit to the American people? Like what, where do you get off that? I thought that was a reality show and, th and there was nothing to that. And so that's what I thought was really funny is that M NBC, promoted that guy and MSNBC spent four years trying to tell us how awful he was. And I wanted to say to, you know, Rachel Maddow and everybody at MSNBC, hey, talk, go, why don't you tell your bosses who yeah. pay your checks up, like, like that they're the ones who <laughs> sold him to us, okay? You know, like, 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 so stop like going, oh, he's terrible. He said, really? Then why didn't, why'd you sell him to, you know, I don't know. It's just, there's something about that that makes me so, laugh. And, so let me just ask you this then, to just talk about you and your act again. For the past four plus years, do you have it, Trump jokes peppered into your act? I'm trying to think of like, I had, I had like a few. I tried to make it something that, that was looking at Trump, not as some kind of like manifestation of like, he wasn't, he wasn't an anomaly. He was, a, he was definitely an expression of, of mm -hmm. our flashy, entertaining ourselves, amusing ourselves to death culture, where everything is a joke and everything is like, you know, narcissistic culture, yeah. flashy, like, like, like uh, everything is, is, is yeah. fodder for grist mm -hmm. for the mill. The, the, I'm trying to come up with the right, I'm trying to think of the damn jokes I've I, I had <laughs> Trump and I'm just like, because, because what was funny was you would, you would start a joke about Trump uh, and, and you would feel the chill in the audience. You know, I, I like, I had one joke where I was talking about COVID. This is one, this isn't the one right. I was trying to think of, but I, I, you get the vibe that this is, this is China's, COVID is nothing but China's way of getting even with Trump for the trade war. Uh, China is killing us on trade. Well, they are now, you know, literally, you know, like, like, but that's not even the good example of like a joke that I wanted to make that was exposed our own complicity in Trump's election in a way that like, yeah, we, we like, all want to go, oh, he's just... It's almost like self-deprecating humor was making fun of us, not making fun of him. Yes, our complicity in, in, in right. electing this guy was what I felt was the most fascinating dynamic selling of him was because people just lost faith in the system and, and politics sure. in general and they just decided to blow it up and right. and, and 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 take a chance on this guy who's a complete right. lunatic and and his worst right. qualities were the things they loved the most about him the actual book i'm writing is going to is focusing on religious satire do you uh, have an opinion about the role of religious satire either in your own act or in comedy in general i i mean i grew, i 
grew up Catholic. And are you referring to something specifically like Life of Brian, that kind of thing? Or because because religion is sort of like taking this main, despite what you read, like with, I guess in the evangelical community, it's different. But for the most part, for most people's lives, religion does no no longer has this cohesive tribal connectedness that it used to have for people, and and telling stories that that appealed to people and gave them a sense of like hope and everything else. Because we've seen such cynicism from our religious leaders and who turned out to be you know either pedophiles or or grifters of of right. epic proportion and you mm -hmm. see it in the in the support for trump that religion doesn't seem to be more to any kind of ethical or you know spiritual story any longer you know making fun of it uh, as it as it recedes in and it's sad because religion was a a, a kind of like this thing that bound people together and and mm -hmm. i don't know how that kind of just died out but it seemed like it was just rife with hypocrisy and greed and self-interest and everything else it sort of like decimated the 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 cohesiveness and the glue that it used to hold people together mm -hmm. i i didn't really dip into the waters of like religious um satire simply because i mean i loved stuff like you know life of brian i sure. <laughs> The people that most like advocate for Jesus are people that would never in a million years listen to anything Jesus actually had to say. It's right. an amazing thing. Like, <laughs> I, I, Jesus is the most antithetical to everything that the people who espouse Jesus. I, I mean, I don't know how you square that circle if you're right. a religious person who is yep. talking about Jesus and then espousing everything that Jesus was not about. I don't know in any universe how that, that those people managed to do right. that. Jesus was not about any of the things that you're saying. He didn't right. even talk about gay people. I don't know how you make that up, you know? <laughs> so I don't know what to make of all of that insanity when it comes to a religion right. that, that doesn't uh, in any way, shape or form adhere to the ideolo ideology of the person who you uh, are uh, ostensibly supposed to be marching in lockstep with, you know? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you, I don't know how you, you managed to do that bit of intellectual jujitsu or right. whatever. I, it's just remarkable to me. It's just, yeah. you have to be the last girl uh, on, uh, on steroids to be able to justify attitudes that have absolutely no connection whatsoever. Right. And everybody left, that's the thing. It's like everyone let you, when you point that out, everyone like, let, yeah, silly. And then the people who are doing that go, yeah, whatever. Like they don't explain to me where Jesus felt about, you know, making yeah. like immigrants and money and, and greed and, and taking care of the poor. Wasn't he about that? How do you not do that? Uh, once again, I just scratch my head and ask for guidance. You know? So is this um, need of, of guidance on your part keep you away from doing religion on the, in your act? Or is it just not a topic that you sow? Or do you, do you have occasional religious humor? Well, I think I've, seen so much, I've seen so much great uh, stuff about Jesus and Bill Hicks's stuff about Jesus okay, sure. and Richard Pryor's stuff about Jesus. Oh, and yeah. Whenever I see something that's like, and I, won't, I don't want to say that like, oh, he nailed that already. That's already done. It, yeah. You know, somebody might be able to find an angle, and 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 they are still. Um, if I find something that that I feel, oh, I, I have something to say about that. Part of the um, examination of my hypothetical book that I've been writing for six years now is that after September 11th, there may be examples of comedians who took up doing religious satire, like as a reaction to September 11th. Uh, I don't know. You're saying you, you've seen this or people took up religious satire after 9-11? You're, you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I, I mean, I'm certain that there are comedians who took up religious satire after September 11th. Yeah. That's for sure. So but the question would be like, is this a phenomenon? Is this something you've observed? Well, I, are you talking about people who, who started you know, mocking, I guess, uh, Muslim religion or, or just religion in general, religious fanaticism in general? Right, what a great question because it, it probably, we have to say we're talking about like different angles on this. So I definitely saw, especially in like local clubs around the Midwest, a few headliners who went like all in on like Islamophobia. But uh, that's, not, that's not what I'm referring to. I'm more referring to sort of the atheist bent of like a Bill Maher, or Ricky Gervais, the um, satirizing of religion as right. a pushback to religious fanaticism. People say, how can you believe, uh, let's say, uh, Trump, or how can you believe some of these crazy stories online? How do people believe QAnon? Like, good example, right. great example is QAnon. Like, how do you believe these, these crazy uh, stories? 
And there's nothing in any of those stories that is even that, that can compare with some of the religious ideologies and, and teachings that right. people have been espousing for generations of, right. of things they are ostensibly supposed to believe uh, if you adhere to, as right. Bill Maher did in, in his religion, uh, real, real, religious, that there, there are rituals that, oh, if I do this, I'll, uh, God likes that and right. will send me to hell. That's so crazy, mm-hmm. like whatever it is. There's all, so many things that are supposed to be against a religious belief and God doesn't want us doing this. And then you go, okay, well, once you open that door to believing things that have no scientific basis or factual basis, but if you frame them as religion, then you're allowed to go, oh, that's my faith. Well, (laughs) so is QAnon, you know what I mean? Like, well, I don't understand why they get, you know, they should get castigated. Now, I guess you could say, well, they're, some people would argue, well, they're, but they're doing something here that's like, you know, hurting people or whatever. I I mean, believing crazy stuff is not hurting anybody, except if it contributes to, um, I guess, a political, radical or violent activism in which you're acting on something because you think the Nazis did. Some people are evil or this and the other thing. But there there is a a definite thing where I scratch Mm -hmm. my head with certain things that people are very judgmental about. But those QAnon people who believe people are eating eating babies and everything else, that's totally normal. You know, it's like it's like, oh, that's your they're just those those people are crazy over there. But these religious people and right. once you go down that rabbit hole of, of believing in stuff that doesn't have any factual right. basis or scientific, uh, uh, right. and I'm a spiritual person, but I don't necessarily mean, you know, mean <laughs> that I, I adhere to just about anything. anyone. It, uh, as an experienced uh, comedian, if you were at a show or an open mic or just somewhere where there were beginner comics around and there was somebody yeah. out, up there doing like their five minutes at an open mic, trying to do satire or religious satire, what kind of advice would you give them? That I think that that's a great angle to go in because if you really have the, the dedication for that and you really believe passionately about something, I always say to don't write what makes the audience laugh, what, write what you're fascinated about and make the audience laugh at it against their will. Find a way to make the audience buy into that perspective and release that tension with you. Believe in it long enough. Don't go, oh, what's this audience going to let? Don't pander. You know, try to find something that really affects you. As far as, as, far as what you asked in the original question, my circumlocution way yeah. of answering the question, I was just saying that, like, I would tell them to really, really uh, find a way that, to believe in something, that, uh, to express and articulate what you believe in and, and to make the audience come on that journey with you um mm-hmm. don't go cheap with some cheap like oh you know uh, yeah, jesus or whatever you know like yeah. like like comedian I, I had a joke a religious joke which which i thought was funny i said that people are we were doing shows outdoors and and comedians have no place to work because of right. the covid thing and so all the comedians are complaining you know we have no place to you know, express ourselves. There's, we have nowhere. How are we going to build a following? And I'm like, I don't know. Jesus managed to do it pretty well. You know what I mean? Like, we're still doing his bits today. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, like the Sermon on the Mount is killer, and people are still quoting that piece. And he didn't have a Netflix special. Right. You know, so don't stop complaining. Right, but also like a lot of things you've been talking about, in a lot of your examples, kind of the twist is the joke is on us. Like it's. Like in that example, yeah. the joke isn't on Jesus, it's on like whiny comedians. <laughs> well, I think that's what it is, is the folly of the human condition. And, and when, we, when you go, we're complicit in, in all of this. Mm-hmm. I think that that's what you're supposed to hold a mirror up to. Our stupidity, our dopiness as, as, as human beings and allow us to laugh at it without shame. Every acting coach that I ever had always told me, we all have Hitler inside us. Right. You know, that was like a big thing that every fucking teacher would teach you <laughs> if you had to play Hitler, would right. tell you, you all have Hitler inside you. But suddenly people in the artistic community, this guy's Hitler. I have none of that. You know, like I'm not that bad. You know, like I, there, there's racism over there. Those people. Are, and so, so are you, you fuck. Like, you know, everyone has that darkness inside them. And we're supposed to be as artists. We're supposed to accept that with with uh, a compassion. Uh, not not fucking just and that doesn't mean you fucking put up with nazis you know what i mean like everyone goes oh you're accepting that no 
You don't do that, but you also recognize that that woundedness and anguish and and damage and people that that distorts people's uh, capacity to see reality that makes people do bad things all the time is something like that is a is an aspect of of our own injuredness right. and and yeah. and so all of those people that were that maybe marching or doing bad things are coming from a place of like woundedness and right. and fear and that doesn't mean you accept it that doesn't mean you go oh, oh so we're just supposed to like it no <laughs> you're supposed to recognize where it comes from because nobody comes into this you know life completely right. messed up and and right. a nazi you know what i mean like <laughs> there are no baby nazis babies are <laughs> wide-eyed open-hearted you know you know well i think the idea that there are no baby nazis sounds like a good note to end <laughs> on i mean there's a little bit of optimism and empathy there yeah. a lesson for us all let me thank you for your time and uh, your conversation, and I really appreciate you. You got it, brother. So that was my interview with Brian Scott McFadden. What a great guy. And he was in Aruba the whole time. We worked there for a month. Oh, who books that? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was resisting the urge to say that during the whole interview. Every time he brought up, he was in Aruba. I was like, there's a comedy club in Aruba? How do I get in on that action? <laughs> yeah, who can who can I cut the legs out from underneath to get my yeah. slot? <laughs> he was there for a whole month. What kind of residency is that, right? You think I could fly in for a show or a weekend, but no. Spent a month in Aruba during a pandemic. There's worse things to be doing. Hey, I want to ask you what I asked him, Dan. You know, um, he's from a show business family, and uh, you are a father. You have a child and one on the way. Yes, I have a have a baby boy and a little baby girl coming on the way. When's that due? If you're willing to say on air. My daughter's due date is around, I think, July okay. 16th or July couple, 14th. July. So you have a couple of months. Uh, we're talking in February. This is coming out a few weeks after we we're talking. So, I mean, so you have two kids and you have two dogs. If either of your kids or your dogs came to you at some point while they were young, say 12 years old, and uh, I asked Scott this, so I'll just ask you this as a young father, and said they wanted to be a comedian, what would your reaction be? Well, if my dog told me at 12 years old <laughs> I wanted to be a comedian, I would say, why did you wait 12 years to talk to me? <laughs> Think of all the money we could have made over the past 12 years. Yeah, you, you've really, you really put me in a tough spot, man. Uh, <laughs> um, I want your human children. If my kids wanted to be stand-up comedians or anything, you know, I would encourage them to, mm -hmm. to look into it and, and to do what they want. You know, I'm going to be one of those people that just, whatever your passion's going to be, as long as it is a good passion, Mm -hmm. Go for it. And I'm going to, okay. I'm going to support you. So it's all about the passion, which is what Brian was saying too. Right. I like the way he said, you know, any job you get is going to grind you down. So if you, <laughs> why not do a job you love rather than get ground down by a job you hate? hundred percent, hundred percent. Hey, we're going to finish up here soon. Our two main um, topics earlier in the episode were Franklin Graham's criticism of Republicans who voted to impeach Trump by comparing them as worse than Judas. Then we talked about ad hominem attacks for a few minutes any final thoughts on either of those topics, Dan? No. <laughs> we pretty much covered everything. Dan is satisfied. We got everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, as we finish up, Dan, uh, anything to plug? What's coming up this spring or summer for you? I know you're working on a new podcast. What should people look for? Uh, a couple things you guys can check out. You can check out my podcast, uh, Mark and Dan Meets World. It's on Anchor. It's on Spotify. It's on Google Podcasts. New episodes come out every Thursday. And that is about Boy Meets World. Boy Meets World. Boy Meets World. Yeah, it was about Boy Meets World. We do um, we do a couple fun bonus episodes. There was a spinoff series that came out in 2014 called Girl Meets World, which is Corey and Topanga. They grew up and they had a daughter and it's now about her meeting the world. Okay. Who's um, your co-host? My co-host is uh, Mark Mackay. He is a local filmmaker, uh, former professional wrestler. Okay. Uh, one of my very best friends. He's, so uh, he's well, a I'll make sure that there's a link to that in the description of t this episode. How about... Thank uh, you. I know there's a lot less shows. There are there is a lot less shows coming up this spring or summer that you have booked already. Um, I got a few things uh, kind of just scattered throughout the year. Um, you know, small things here and there. The Dry Bar Comedy Special that I filmed in January 2020 uh, yeah. production got delayed because of COVID uh, multiple times and dates kept getting pushed back. It is scheduled to be coming out in mid to late March. Congratulations on your Dry Bar Special. I'm really excited for you. Thank you, man. It, it was an honor to do. It was a privilege. Um, it, it was such an incredible experience, and I'm just happy to see that it's finally coming out. Let me just mention, um, also, I'll let you know, uh, Dan, anybody's listening, I'm just plugging this. The one-man show, The Comical Heathen, has been accepted to the Kansas City Fringe, which will be this summer. 
All right. And it's uh, and they're going to try to have a live fringe. I was actually accepted last year, but the, they went all virtual because of the pandemic. They're going to try to have some live shows. Uh huh. So wow, that's awesome, man. They're still working on the exact date for that, but you know, if I know more, you'll know more. Mm-hmm. So uh, besides that, you know, check us out on you know YouTube, Facebook. Uh, if you made it all the way to the end of this episode, I hope you enjoyed it. Please like us. We need likes and follows on YouTube to, to get up our membership. Retweet, reshare, send in your comments, send in some carrier pigeons. And before we end, I got to make sure I thank everybody. Thank you, Brian Scott McFadden, for talking to me from Aruba. I love the time I spent with you. Mad Mar for phoning in with your wild complaints. I really appreciate my friends who phone in like that. And my good friend, Jeff Gettert, has actually made our, our season two theme music. He also contributes some writing to the show. Thank you, Jeff Gettert. I want to thank Dan for being my co-host today. Dan Brown, my comedy brother, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, brother. And thank you to all the listeners. I really appreciate you. Remember our saying at the Comic Relief, it may be your dogma, but it's my karma. And I'm all about spreading the love. Thank you. Thank you.